Hey, welcome everybody to another edition of the Midtown Pastor Summer Fun Fest. I don't know. You know, what can we call this thing? I got these guys with me. I got some of the most creative minds in Nashville sitting in this room with me, and we still can't come up with a name for this podcast. Right, Dave? That's correct, but I trust it will emerge when it needs to. So uh, I know we want to get into the text, but I'd love to hear your people that you shepherd. They'd always want to know how you guys are doing. What's new in your life? Is there a new food that you've introduced into your life or a new exercise, a new routine? What's happening? Ford learned how to ride a bike the other day. Yeah. We, we were a little bit negligent in getting him bike trained as the third mm-hmm. in He's line. He's 15, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. He actually gets his per- driver's permit. <laughs> in a couple of days, but he's, he's he's not fifteen. Tell him how old Ford is. Ford is seven years old. So we finally got him out on a bike, and it was fun to watch it click. Now I think he rode literally four hours in our driveway yesterday, oh, just awesome. back and forth, back and forth. We've become, I feel like, crazy plant people. <laughs> like I never imagined I'd be doing this, but we were covering our tomato plants last week. Tucking them in, our neighbors said. They were covering all of our quilts. <laughs> Someone came over, Eric Warner, and did a, a soil sample test on our raised beds. So then I went out and bought fertilizer. I'm like, wow, I'm really getting down deep in this gardening hole. Have you <laughs> named your plants and do you talk to them? Well, I, don't, I haven't named them, but I have heard that if you talk to them, they grow better. So it's more like sweet nothings. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Elliot, I heard that you're into electricity now. Yes. <laughs> I light during the storm a couple weeks ago, and uh, we lost power. And then when power came back on, we didn't have a lot of working appliances in our house. There's a big char mark by our fuse box where the fireball almost burnt down our house. So it's kind of scary. Um, but we are up and running, and the Lord has been gracious in getting us our appliances back on. But that's not our new quarantine thing. My wife and I have been traveling through the Marvel universe together Mm. Uh, Uh, we are watching basically all we've skipped a couple but we are knocking on the door of infinity war for those avengers fans out there we're almost there i've seen them them all and my wife hasn't but it's been a really fun journey through there's a lot of gospel actually in these stories it's they're fascinating so at our house it's been a little different than you guys i think i've eaten more food in the last two months than i have in the last two years and ice cream has become I mean, it's like the daily hug from Jesus just to eat mm. ice cream with with whipped cream on it. You know, Ooh. it's not like ice cream is enough. It needs more, more, cream. more cream. So, guys, let's dive into our passage because what a fun parable that Jesus gives us here that you would think on the surface is clear, but it's not really that clear. Mm-hmm. So, Elliot, yeah. would you read for us today? Yeah, this is Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice." so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
Thanks, Elliot. You know, before we dive into taking this parable apart and why Jesus is telling us, or should I say, um, let's dive into why he's telling us this. In the first verse, we see he's saying he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he's telling this so that we won't lose heart. And I'd love for you guys to talk a little bit about what does that mean to lose heart? I think that heart being the center of the self in the biblical sense, it kind of wraps up the whole person. There's a sense in which losing heart looks like despair. It looks like depression. It looks like, I don't really want to keep trying to do this. Kind of the exercising in futility that just nothing seems to be working and certainly not going the way that I want it to go. And each step of the journey feels hard. And so losing heart, I'm thinking of several other passages where the heart is spoken to um, by Jesus or in wisdom literature, like there's a drive that can be vaped away that Jesus is talking to. Yeah, when I hear that term, lose heart, it makes me think of, there's another place in Proverbs that talks about having a crushed spirit, you know, a crushed spirit who can bear. Mm -hmm. And I know that for me, what losing heart looks like, I mean, I think it can bear the marks of all those words you just used, mm -hmm. Elliot. There's kind of a, a resignation to it that I feel like when I, I know I've gotten to a place where I've lost heart, where I feel like I have no capacity or, or ingenuity or emotional energy or ability to affect some form of change on a situation, and maybe uh, even that I don't believe that even somebody who does have the ability or power or capacity is going to use that to affect change. And so there's this just sense of I'm, I'm resigned to this is what this is. It's a very defeated place. I know Brant's got some stuff to share about this, but before you do, I want to stay with what you're saying, Dave, because I know that my language changes when I begin to lose heart like you're talking about. And I start to say things like, I can't do this anymore, which really means I won't do this anymore. What are some other signs, outward signs, or maybe even words that we start saying that are just flags that are saying, oh, you're losing heart. Well, one of the things, I mean, even in this parable, we see this you know, woman obviously hasn't lost heart yet because she's still beating down still the door. Knocking. But sometimes it's what I am saying, and sometimes it's what I stop saying. I just get quiet. And what it can outwardly look like is, is I begin to isolate and retreat from everyone around me that I, I may believe does care or could affect some sort of change. And I certainly stopped talking to the Lord about it. And I even stopped, I kind of stopped talking to myself about mm -hmm. it. I just kind of go dark. Yeah. So. Yeah, Randy, those words used the, I can't do this anymore. I won't do this anymore. My version of that is, I don't want to do this anymore, which lets me know I've associated taking heart and having heart with what I want to do. <laughs> and my definitions of those things. Is this fun for me? Is this going to cost me something? Is this going to cause suffering? So my heart valor is associated with what do I want to do and what do I not want to do? And it's a fickle thing. So Jesus, he does a really interesting thing here because he ties losing heart to not praying. Prayer has now left the building. And that's not always true. It's not always true that the only reason we stop praying is because we've lost heart. But Jesus seems to say that it's often true. 
I'd love for you guys to talk a little bit about how those two things are connected to one another and the point that Jesus is making here before we get into the parable. Yeah, I think one of the ways that those are connected is that if I've lost heart, I start to believe that I'm alone or act like I'm alone. Yeah. I don't want to ask for help because I don't believe anybody wants to help me or could help me. I don't even want the help necessarily because I've become content in the place of despair that I'm in. I've actually made a home in my despair and I don't want to leave it. If that's the case, then I don't want to ask God to take me out of it. I don't want to talk to him because I don't believe that he wants to help, that he could help, that he's there. Or I think it's maybe even below those things, I don't even want to be brought out of it necessarily. It's so good, Brant, because you know we often say at Midtown that your thoughts are a bad neighborhood and you should never go there by yourself. Meaning that when I isolate, I start writing a narrative that may be based on how I feel and not based on what is true. And if I'm not uh, speaking anymore, if I'm not praying anymore, I'm not inviting God into that narrative. And I'm also certainly not inviting other people into that narrative. Yeah, I'm getting mugged in the neighborhood of my own thoughts. Sometimes I'm the person who's mugging myself, I guess. So this is a question for you, Brent, but also for the other guys, because this story or this passage of scripture is in the context of several parables about the return of Christ. So in him talking about not losing heart, he's connecting it with us waiting for the return of Christ. What is he doing here, and how do we lose heart when it comes to Jesus returning, which many of the folks that may be listening to this may not even think about that on a daily basis? So Jesus sets up really clearly these two really important poles in us understanding time. And one of those is his first coming, and the next pole is his, is his second coming. It's the finish line. And what he tells us, and he's really consistent in communicating this to the disciples, is that the time in between those comings, those two advents like we've talked about before, it's hard. And it can be discouraging that we're waiting for a kingdom that hasn't fully come yet, and it's easy to lose sight of that. I think about when I look around me, and sometimes I think, man, Lord, this is such good news. Why don't more people believe this? Or when I watch people who I really care about who seem to not care about the gospel anymore. And sometimes it's not even that they don't seem to, it's that they say that they don't. Oh, Lord, this is hard to wait when people around me have given up waiting or aren't interested in waiting. And I can think of a lot of other you know examples of things that can put me in that place in this in-between time. Well, I think one of the things that's true about prayer, and it's true about corporate worship, it's true about time in the Word. I mean, prayer is one of the primary vehicles and gifts that the Lord has given us to actually carry the promises and the truth and kind of mysteriously through the Holy Spirit, bring that truth not just intellectually into our heads, but actually bolster our hearts and strengthen our hearts and give weight to the truth in ourselves. And so, you know, waiting is really hard to do. Waiting on an empty stomach is impossible to do. <laughs> and so, you know, life, if I imagine the pipes going into my house, the, the old galvanized pipes that are full of crud, the crud of life, eventually the crud can kind of constrict the flow. Prayer is what keeps the water, the promises and the experience of those things flowing into my life. And so when I don't pray, just like if water didn't pass through that pipe for very long, eventually, you know, it would be completely corroded and, and impassable. So it's a critical gift that the Lord's given us, but it has to flow. And Randy, what I don't know how the analogy works out exactly, but 
what you're talking about, Randy, is why do I need prayer to not lose heart? And how is losing heart evidence that I'm not praying? You know, the corroded pipe, I'm not sure, but it's like, if the water's not flowing through, it's going to corrode. It also is like, once it's corroded, I'm not going to pray, you know? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so there's just, it's kind of like a cyclical. Both and. Yeah, both and. So let's just put a couple things out there right now. Does Jesus love me more when I pray? No. (laughs) But I experience his love more when I do. Is the gospel more true for me when I pray? Absolutely. But is the gospel promises stronger for me when I pray? All these trick questions. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the truth of it is, is that if I never pray again, God still loves me. If I never pray again, the gospel promises that are true for me are anchored in Jesus, not in my power to pray So my prayer life is not so I can get something. My prayer life often is to awaken me to what I've already got. So in this passage, we're putting out there that if you're listening to this and your prayer life is anemic, it may be because you've lost heart. It may be because you've fainted in the season of waiting on the return of Christ. And here's the great news is that in this parable are a couple of things to help us regain our heart to unfaint, so Mm -hmm. to speak, Mm -hmm. and to awaken again in a very natural, love-centered way my prayer life out of a place of obligation into a place of joy. So let's dive into this parable and try to see what key things the Lord has given us to bring some healing to our souls. The first thing we see here is this judge who doesn't fear God and doesn't care what people think. Guys, talk about why those two things right there are Jesus' description of a despicable man. One of the things I read about the culture of the day is that communal justice, communal good, had a religious driving factor, a fear of God. I honor and respect what God says to be good. It also was, it's not an individualistic culture, and so what my family and my community and my even little village What's good for them will will inform my decisions. And so for this judge to have neither one of those things, he has no guiding factor of right and wrong. He has no guiding factor of good and evil other than himself. And he's completely turned inward and said, I'll make all the decisions on what is best for me. And for he's in a position of power. So for my community and for the people underneath me, and it's a scary and dangerous thing, that the only litmus test for this man to decide on righteousness and justice is himself. But we would never live like that today, would no, we? No, I, mean, I can't think of any <laughs> any modern Modern day. parallels. Yeah, modern parallel. You know, Jesus later on sums up the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And biblically, the opposite of fear is not not fear, it's love. So if he doesn't fear God and he doesn't fear anybody else. He doesn't love God and he doesn't love anybody else. So the only thing he loves is himself, it seems to be clear in this parable. Which comes out in his self-talk. Yeah. Like he says, which is kind of comical, but it's really true. He says in verse 5, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, like he even knows it about himself. <laughs> Self, I don't care about what God thinks or what people think. I don't care what's good for them. I don't care what's good for the people around me. I, I'm so s- turned inward, I even say it to myself. So when it says that he didn't care what people thought about him, which is kind of a shocker because that seems to be kind of a mantra of our day as a picture of health is that we stop caring what other people think and kind of live our own life our own way. Our own truth. Our own truth. And so is that what Jesus is saying here is that we should 
care immensely about what other people think about us and let that be a controlling factor in our lives? I know this is a rabbit trail, but take me down this road just a little bit about what is healthy when it comes to how I think about other people thinking about me. It's one thing to say I don't care what other people think about me, and it's another thing to say I don't care about people. And it seems to me that when he says I don't care what people think about me, it's actually expressing less about their view of him and more about his view of them and his lack of care for them. And so I think there's a healthy detachment of my identity or my sense of value shouldn't be established by the opinions of other people. That comes from what Christ has done and what he says about me. So there's a healthy place to have that. But then there's there's actually a, a way to protect your own arrogance and your own self-love by saying, I don't care what anybody else thinks about me, because really all I care about is what I think. And I think that's where we find this guy. I would even argue that shame, it gets a really bad rap in our world right now. Like shame is the worst possible thing you could ever feel and you should never feel it. (laughs) And I don't think that that's true, that there's actually a a healthy place for shame in our lives. We are taking call-ins from Brene Brown right now. No, go ahead, man. I love her stuff, but I think what you're saying is you're you're talking about the difference between healthy shame and toxic shame. So talk to us about healthy shame. That if everyone in my family sits me down and says, hey, you are really hurting all of us right now, it would not be healthy for me to look at them and say, you know what, I don't care what any of you think because I'm not going to take your shame. (laughs) That should be a wake-up call for me to say, oh, God, am I so blinded Hmm. to myself and to the way that I'm hurting people? And maybe you want to speak to me through that. And of course, that can get warped and come out in all kinds of wrong ways. But I do have an obligation to the people around me, to my community, to my family, to my church, to the body of Christ. And I need to be held accountable to that in some ways. And shame in the right context is one of the things that God can use to help wake me up to the fact that I'm a part of something that's bigger than just me. Yeah, I'm, y'all can't see me on this podcast. I've got a great face for podcasts, but I'm flipping through my Bible right now. and I'm, <laughs> um, But I'm flipping to all these different passages in the New Testament where Paul is repeatedly saying, you should not use your position to serve yourself. Each one of you should look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. And it's like, there is a sense of when I need what people think about me to define me, like you were saying, Dave, that's unhealth. There's a really healthy thing that says, I'm so secure that I'm actually going to leverage myself for your good. Like you need to think about other people and care what they think. And especially a man in power This is a judge. And so that is a major red flag that he's looking only to his interest and not to the interest of the people. He doesn't care what they think about him. It's saying he doesn't care about what they're thinking about, mm-hmm. which she's thinking not about him. She's thinking about the wrong that's been done to mm-hmm. her. So do I even care about what you care about? Right, right. That's good, Elliot. This is a style of argument that Jesus is using to create a negative to illustrate a positive. Tell me what he's doing here, because he's painting this awful judge who is a man that is not a healthy member of society, who's self-centered, who could care less about God and has become a law unto himself, and yet he's the one that these supposable prayers of the widow are being offered to. What is Jesus doing in this parable? Yeah, he's creating a, this, like you talked about, Randy, a really vivid picture of, a, of an unjust judge and is saying, if even a judge like this would listen to a widow's prayers, how much more 
our Heavenly Father. That phrase, how much more, is one that Jesus uses a lot. And that's what we see him employing. He's contrasting this judge with our Heavenly Father. Yeah, and so by comparison, at least on the first step of this parable, Jesus is saying, by comparison of the opposite, God is nothing like this judge. He is the complete opposite of this judge. Which, so if you start to look at the descriptors, God isn't annoyed by the requests. God, he does care about the good of the people. He's not only thinking about himself. There's all these levels of comparison that would say, oh, if the judge is like this, then God is the complete opposite of that. I would say even to the most extreme measure, if we look at things like Philippians 2, where it said that from his position, he emptied himself, took on flesh, and went to the cross, that I think you could argue that the comparison is so stark that we have a judge that doesn't wait for us to knock on the door. He comes and knocks on our door and mm-hmm. says, hey, I see I see what sin's done to you. I see the injustice, and I'm stepping towards you, not just waiting for you to come step towards me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that radical. So we have that kind of a God, that kind of a father who, like the prodigal, he's standing on the porch looking and waiting, not kind of hoping we ring the doorbell enough. And that's why he, when he teaches us to pray, he starts it with our Father, that knowing God is our Father, our Father who comes to look for us, our God who seeks us out, like we talked about with the story of the prodigal son, that's got to be the grounding for our relationship with God in prayer. So I don't really know how to ask this question, but if I stopped praying and I'm losing heart, what part of what you guys are saying, what am I forgetting? What has been lost in me and what you're saying that has caused my life now to become somewhat prayerless? Because I think about each of you are fathers of young kids, and um, your kids have no problem approaching you and invading your space, right? True. <laughs> do you have to schedule time with your kids, or do your kids <laughs> just ready all the time? Like, And I'm trying to connect the dots here between you being a father to your your young kids, and where do we lose this childlikeness to where our father is so unapproachable now or so uninvolved in my life, or we don't need him? My mind is going, my imagination is going to lots of really sweet places, but if Jesus told this parable to have them not lose heart, and I stop praying when I lose heart, and Jesus wants this parable to be a teaching by the opposite, He's saying, hey, this widow was persistent and never lost heart, and we'll talk about her in a minute, but never lost heart with a judge that did not care about her and did not care about the people and had no interest. How much more then should it spur you on to prayer if the opposite judge, if the opposite is the Father? Like that you can always come to him. He never tires of hearing from you. He's always thinking about you, and he's always for you. He's not annoyed by you. It's almost like trying to light the match for prayer life because I've decided when I don't pray that my God is like this judge. And so he's saying, hey, I've got to blow all that out of the water and maybe reignite the spark that says, you've stopped praying for all the wrong reasons. You stopped praying because let me help pour some gasoline into your tank of not losing heart because this judge is not your father. Okay. So I want to jump off there because I think, and I'll let you guys jump in here, but I think that it's not that I forget that God's a good father. I think that even we ask our children at Midtown, is God love? And they go, yes, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know. I think it's the other part of the story, that we forget who we are, or we've never known who we are. So let's talk about this widow, because 
if the widow is us, and this is a story of opposites, what is Jesus displaying about us in this parable? Well, it's easy when, especially when we're we're hurting, to kind of feel like a widow and feel like I'm all alone. And this woman as a widow in this society would have, have been incredibly vulnerable, had no one to really represent her or champion her. And so it's very easy, especially when suffering or injustice of some form comes into our lives, to feel like that and to kind of fall into the, you know, into the rut of feeling like that. But, you know, I think the part of why even we're talking about prayer and prayer being this vehicle that brings the truth and the reality of who we are to the Lord into perspective and make it alive in our lives is that we can never say that as the children of God. (laughs) I'm never alone. I never don't have an advocate. I never don't have someone representing me day and night. I never don't have all the things that come with having Christ because I have him, I have everything that comes with him. And so, you know, a lot of times, like you were, I think you were saying, you know, the narratives that I can create or or the feelings that I can have can kind of put a blanket over that truth and hide it, but it's still all under there. Prayer is kind of what lifts the blanket off (laughs) and actually shows me, oh, wait, this is the truth of who I am. I'm not a widow. I'm a son. I'm, I'm a daughter. I'm the bride. Let me trace this a little bit from the other direction. I think something I've encountered recently is that there are times where I haven't wanted to pray because I think about prayer as saying the right words. Oh, I know scripture has a lot to say about prayer and it teaches me how to pray. And so what accumulates on me is all of these shoulds for the way that I should pray and all the things that I shouldn't pray for. And then it's saying the right words or or if it's not that, but it's at least praying for the right topics. I got to be praying for other people and praying for this and praying for that and Sometimes I get tired of saying the right words or get tired of praying for all the things I think I should be praying for. And I was telling this to my wife the other day and she was she told me, "Hey, you are being crazy right now. You are forgetting what this is about." Oh, yeah, this is not about the right words because God isn't asking me to say the right words because I don't ask my daughter to s- well, I do ask her to say please, but that's not what we're talking about. Uh, uh, you are was... an unjust judge who neither fears God nor respects man. That oh, I'm not looking for her to, to do it all just right in order for me to come toward her and that her expressing a need is enough and that I'm being reminded, oh, me bringing my need to God, that's what God wants from me because he's a good father. He cares about me. And I think I can see the word elect in this passage. And the way that I've heard that growing up in my life is a really like cold, sterile, theological term that feels like it has no significance or is supposed to have a lot of significance, but is all intellectual. But what God is saying here is I've chosen you and I've set my love on you and my affection on you. I've come after you. And Elliot, you pointed this out the other day when we were talking about it. It's as if God, instead of opening the door to this widow breaking down the door, that he opens up the door and then proposes to her and makes me, uh, makes us his bride. And that then totally changes uh, all the shoulds that I come to prayer with. Yeah, you know, what you're referring to is verse 7, where Jesus says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? And I'd love for you guys just to take a moment and talk about what is happening in my life that I feel like a widow. What are kind of things that are happening in our community's life that just produce this feeling of I'm powerless 
I'm unloved, I'm unwanted, I'm all alone. If I'm going to make it, I'm going to have to figure out how to do it myself. It's up to me to where the only person you pray to anymore is that you're constantly muttering to yourself, (laughs) praying to yourself to get better at what you're doing. I think this season, I know I can say this about myself, but I can say it with a lot of integrity about my family. I can say this about our, you know, the people in our community that I talk to that in a lot of different ways and in a lot of different points, everyone has had a sense of feeling overwhelmed and like what's being asked of them or what's being required of them is something I don't have the energy for. I don't have the capacity for, I don't have the knowledge for, um, I don't have the emotional reservoir for. So a lot of times when I feel like I'm pushed to my limit and to the place to where I feel like I've given everything I know how to give, then the idea of, hey, I have resources and capacity in Christ beyond what I have uh, the ability to give, prayer is kind of what kicks that in. But at that juncture, oftentimes I'll take on the widow hat and just say, I'm, I'm done. I've lost heart and I'm kind of resigned to this is what it is. So for me, just there's been a lot of opportunity to kind of come up to the threshold of what I feel like I can do and then have the choice before me. Am I going to step into the to the strength of what the Lord has for me? Or am, am I going to kind of walk away and back away and go to that kind of dark place of feeling like I'm all alone and this is all up to me? And that's when my muttering prayer begins. I remember, I don't even know where I heard this first in my life, but this phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle. And I cannot tell you the ways that has wrecked my spiritual life uh, and it's been such a roadblock for me because whenever I come up against something I can't handle, I think, well, he never would give me more than I can handle, and so I guess I should be able to handle this myself. I may as well get busy handling it. As if God's going to say to the widow, hey, you know, like, I'll help you this time, but like, you really need to get this figured out and get it together, okay? And I, I think that sometimes that's what God is saying to me. And nowhere, just to be clear, nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that God will never give us more than we can handle. But what he does promise is that when I get to the end of myself, that he's there and that he delights to carry me there, to hold my hand and walk with me and guide me and to give me everything I need right there. Mm. Yeah. So Elliot, I want to bring you into the conversation here. So when I forget that my father is good, I stop praying and I lose heart. But when I forget that I'm not a widow, but I'm a bride, I tend to lose heart and stop praying So at the very end of this passage, it says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And I'd love for you to talk about, as we're kind of wrapping up our podcast here, what does faith have to do with justice? Mm. And as Christians, do we really want justice from God? Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I think that on many levels, even the ones that are hard to grasp, we do want justice when the Son of Man comes. There's a couple levels there. The first one is that because of the work of our heavenly husband and our heavenly judge, the judge, like you said, Dave, who came knocking on our door, and the judge who, Philippians 2 says, emptied himself, now we stand robed in the righteousness of Christ And so now when we stand, this is almost too good not to be true, like we've said before, I can't even bear this thought. We stand before God and we actually do plead justice. We say to God, because of the work of Jesus, treat me as I deserve, which is 
is almost ludicrous to say out loud. <laughs> That's what the book of Hebrews says. We enter the throne room boldly, like we deserve Justice to be there. Justice has been satisfied. Justice has been satisfied by Jesus, and now we stand before God just. First John chapter 1, if anyone confesses his sin, he is faithful and just to forgive them. Like, it's just for him to forgive us because we stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And so when we stand before God, we're not pleading like a scared, homeless widow. widow. <laughs> we, we stand and we say, give me what I deserve, which is the goodness of the Father. I deserve that now because of Jesus. And that's getting really close to an intimate place that we don't really like to go because it's almost... It's like getting too close to the fire. That That is what my heart was made to believe, that I could stand before God and plead justice, and I belong in the throne room because he's purchased my spot there. I so often stay out of the throne room until I feel like I deserve it, but my life never allows me to feel like that. But if I come clothed with Jesus standing behind my husband, then I deserve to be there, and I say, give me justice, which is the Father's goodness. Faith unlocks that door for me to walk into that room and make that cry. If I deserve is the key that unlocks that door, it'll never unlock because it's merited on what Christ has done. And mm -hmm. so it's why faith is so key. You know, it's faith, which is also a gift. I mean, think about how much we've been given here. He gives us prayer and he gives us everything in Christ. Primarily, he's given us faith to believe the very thing that you said. Mm-hmm. So prayer is, is actually what even strengthens that faith and the experience of coming into the throne room and pleading justice before the Father. I'm now so united to Christ by faith. I'm united in him, my, our union with Christ that we unlock by faith, that God will treat me as he treats Jesus. Mm -hmm. So good. And in our final moments here, I want to take us to what does that look like in our lives? When my life starts to experience vibrant prayer, my heart begins to gain traction on not losing heart, but gaining heart because of who the Father is and who I am. Remember when our kids were teenagers, they had no hesitation inviting their friends to our dinner table. We never really knew how many we were feeding. We always had extra peanut butter and jelly. Some of you guys know some of the kids that ended up coming over to our house, and they would come over even when our kids weren't there and just <laughs> kind of rummage through the cabinet. But my kids owned nothing. The only position they had where they were sons in my home and daughters in my home, but in that position, they invited all their friends to the bounty of the home. So talk to me and talk to our community about what does a life look like that's lived by faith that we are sons and daughters of a gracious father? Well, you know, that last verse, however, when the son of man comes and Brant, you refer to this, that that's referring to the second coming of Christ, which is where in complete totality, everything that is promised to us in Jesus will be fully brought to bear. And part of what prayer does is it brings that, the first fruits of that kingdom to come and the promises of that and the hope of that and the, the strength of that, um, the certainty of that into the present turmoil. So I am somebody who, even when everything experientially is telling me, and is maybe even in some ways completely true, I feel like I have empty pockets. We're like trust fund kids. There's always an inheritance that is coming. And I actually have the capacity to draft from that right now and bring some of the money and the power of that into the present. And so I know for me, there have been people who are so captivated 
in a healthy way by the second coming, that they live like it's already happened. It's so on the forefront of their mind. It's on the forefront of everything that they're uh, experiencing as they walk through life. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that they don't grieve. It doesn't mean that they don't express sadness and loss and any of that sort of stuff. But there's always a counterweight. Mm-hmm. There's a lose heart and take heart and a ballast. There's a, the buoyancy, a spiritual buoyancy to these people mm-hmm. because they know that no matter how much loss or how much sadness or how much injustice or mm-hmm. anything we face, which we will in this world, mm-hmm. the justice in its entirety will be satisfied and fully consummated uh, when he returns. I'll flip it on you, Randy. What is delayed justice? Why would that help me take heart? If knowing justice is coming in its entirety... Why would that help me not lose heart and to always pray now? It's a great question because, you know, as we live our lives now, we believe as sons and daughters that Christ is in us, the hope of glory, and that we become now ambassadors for the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God has come wherever we go. Christ goes in us, before us, and behind us. In many ways, Jesus even said in Matthew, we have become the light of the world. And so now, as advocates of this kingdom that will one day come in its fullness, and yet it's here now, for us to know that and to work and to live and to labor on behalf of the kingdom fills us up to the very full. And we're going to face a lot of injustice between now and that time. And one day, the Lord will make all things right. And one day, he will make everything broken, unbroken, and every bad thing undone. And so in that time in between, we're called to endure and not lose heart Mm. and to be that light of trusting that our Savior is one day coming, Mm. but he's here now. Mm. I'd like to close in our time of prayer. And I I just want to pray as we close for those of you that are sitting here listening to this going, I think I've lost heart. I think my prayer life has either vanished or it never existed. And I've let the world tell me who I am. And the world is not telling me that I'm a beloved bride of the high king of heaven, or you've forgotten that your father is good, maybe because you had an earthly father that wasn't good, and that word has been ruined for you and it has to be redeemed. But I want to pray for those that have lost heart and pray for those of you that are listening to this that have not lost heart. Let's pray for those that have lost heart. Let's be the kingdom of heaven now in this place. So join me in prayer. Lord, I thank you that even when we lose heart, you do not. I thank you that when we forget who we are, you do not forget. And I thank you that when we forget who you are, Lord, you never stop being who you are. So uh, I pray, Lord, that you'd continue today with all those that are listening to be the Jesus in Revelations chapter 3 that comes and knocks on our door and says, let me in. I want to sit and eat with you and be with you. And I pray, Father, that especially in this time that feels so isolated and alone, that Lord, this would be the time that you would move into the rooms in our heart and not bring condemnation, but bring grace and love and celebration and name us afresh the beloved. And in doing so, Lord, I pray that we would not hold this treasure loosely, but that we would go into the world and be generous. As Dave said, that we would go into this world now as heirs to the kingdom and start spending our inheritance now and bring hope where there is no hope, to bring light where there is no light to bring grace where there is no grace. So lead us in that, Father, and awaken us anew, especially in this moment today, to who you are and who we are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.